humans, hello humans. It's me, Ellie Krug. That was a little flat on man's, but you got it. You know me. Signature opening. Welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio with me, Ellie Krug, your esteemed host. I say that tongue in cheek. And resident idealist. That's not tongue in cheek. And that's the whole focus of the show. Idealism and idealists, people working to make the world a better place, often at great personal or financial risk. And of course, happily, I'm speaking to you after the 2022 midterms, which went far better than most Democrats and progressives feared. Hooray for that. And spoiler alert, the election cycle also went well for yours truly. I won a seat on the local school board. More about that in my C block. But first, we have a great show. The big interview is an encore, partial encore, um, of uh, my interview of the modern white man curators. That's the name of the podcast um, from May 14th of 2022. You'll enjoy listening to these guys. However, let us start with our featured idealist. And it's someone we all know. I am speaking of now Senator-elect John Fetterman. Yes, that John Fetterman. It turns out that he's extremely idealistic. And I didn't entirely know that until I started researching him. Here are the basics. John Fetterman was born in August 1969 in West Reading, Pennsylvania, to parents who were both only 19 years old at the time. Notwithstanding how you might think that would go for John Fetterman, uh, John Fetterman's father got involved in the insurance business and apparently became very, very successful. Attended college, did all that stuff. The family lived, in fact, the family lived in an affluent neighborhood of York, Pennsylvania. And note this, John Fetterman's parents were conservative Republicans. And it appears that at first, John Fetterman was destined to follow in his father's footsteps. In fact, Fetterman graduated from the same college his father did. And by age 24, Fetterman had an MBA from the University of Connecticut. Fetterman then went to Pittsburgh to work for Chubb, the ginormous insurance company. But along the way, two things happened in John Fetterman's life to change his trajectory. One was the car accident death of Fetterman's best friend um, while studying for his MBA in Connecticut. So he had a roommate and uh, his best friend uh, roommate was killed in a car accident. The second uh, massive event was that while in Connecticut, John Fetterman joined Big Brothers Big Sisters, and he became the big brother of an eight-year-old boy from New Haven, Connecticut, whose father had died of AIDS and whose mother was battling the very same disease. This caused John Fetterman to become, quote, preoccupied with the concept of the random lottery of birth. So think about that. Fetterman learns at an early age he's got privilege. He's understanding how life can be unfair. Fetterman also promised the mother of his little brother. It's called it's called Littles when you're in Big Brother Big Sister, because I was I'm a big I was a big sister. Fetterman promised the mother of his of the his eight year old Little that he would look out out for her son after she was gone. So we see here a young man of privileged means uh, set set to continue forward with that privilege suddenly come to understand that life can be cut short and that for others, life can be incredibly unfair. 
What a lesson to learn in your early 20s. And thus, by the time that Fetterman was 26, he had dramatically changed course. In 1995, while in Pittsburgh, uh, John Fetterman joined AmeriCorps. Now, think <laughs> and, and was sent to teach Pittsburgh students uh, who were pursuing their GEDs. A year later, John Fetterman went to the Harvard Kennedy School and he got a degree in public policy. Now, this is after he had all been set to be get set up in the insurance world. But he didn't do that. By 2001, John Fetterman was volunteering in Braddock, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Pittsburgh, helping youth earn their GEDs. Braddock at one time was a booming steel town. But like so many other steel towns, it had suffered greatly when the steel industry went elsewhere. In fact, uh, the town had lost 90% of its population. And the town's population by the early 2000s was less than 3,000 people, with 70% of the residents identifying as black. In 2004, Fetterman moved to Braddock and soon ran for mayor against the incumbent. And in the Democratic primary, John Fetterman, he beat the incumbent by one vote to become, you know, become the Democratic candidate for mayor. And eventually there was no Republican challenger. I mean, we're not talking. It's not a big town, okay? But Fetterman won the vote to become mayor. And Fetterman took his role in life in Braddock seriously. He founded a nonprofit, Braddock uh, Redo, it, uh, spelled R-E-D-U-X, okay, which he used to buy and preserve properties like a church in Braddock, which later became the town's community center. It, it's also noteworthy here that much of what John Fetterman was doing was subsidized by his family um, because the mayor job only paid $150 a month. And so even though Fetterman's parents were conservative Republicans, they understood what John Fetterman was trying to do, and they wrote him monthly checks to help him live. Um, as mayor, John Fetterman initiated youth and art programs and built the town's first basketball court. He also established a two-acre farm where Braddock teens worked. To fund this, Fetterman sought to collaborate with nonprofits and sought out grants like a $400,000 grant from the Heinz Foundation to build a green roof employing 100 kids for a summer. Think about using your imagination and about forming relationships. Very, very innovative, and that's what idealism idealists should do. You think outside the box. You use your imagination. Fetterman also empowered the Braddock, uh, empowered the Braddock Police Department. And Fetterman acted as a mediator in disputes between the police department and the citizens. And for a five-year period, there were no gun-related murders in Braddock. I think thanks to John Fetterman. But soon Fetterman established himself as someone willing to go out of the bounds for humans. In his second term as mayor, he refused to leave the U.S. Steel Tower in Pittsburgh, where he prote protested that uh, the Pittsburgh Medical Center's decision to close uh, the only hospital in Braddock, which had employed 600 people, it was the largest employer in town. John Fetterman goes and says, you can't do this, which eventually they still did. He got Fetterman got arrested as a result of that. And beginning in 2013, Fetterman started marrying same-sex couple, same couples in Braddock in defiance of a 1996 Pennsylvania law that prohibited same-sex marriages. This Fetterman guy 
you know, real deal. All of this attracted the attention of the press. In 2009, The Guardian, a famous, you know, The Guardian, famous paper, called uh, Fetterman America's Coolest Mayor. Fetterman was also on the Colbert Report and the nightly show with Larry Wilmore. Something else about Larry Fetterman that I, I had never known about until I read about this in Wikipedia. Fetterman has tattoos on both of his arms. Both of them reflect his devotion to Braddock. On his left arm are the, are the numbers of Braddock's zip code. And on Fetterman's right arm are the dates the dates of nine murders that occurred in the town while he was mayor. Think about that. There is, of course, much more to John Fetterman, including his stroke and how he beat <laughs> Dr. Oz this week to become the first Democrat to win a seat, this, this seat in Pennsylvania in 60 years. And I just want to tell you, I mean, you know, there was much made about John Fetterman's stroke and, and a lot of, you know, he got a lot of uh, pushback about his performance at the only debate that he had with uh, Mehmet Oz um, a week before last. But you know what? I think that what happened is that a lot of people saw an idealist working hard for more idealism. There are a lot of people out there that have family members who have suffered strokes or traumatic brain injuries and many of them know that it hasn't affected the intelligence of their family member or loved one. It just has made it more difficult for them to communicate. And I think that that's what people saw in that debate. And I think that people understood that John Fetterman was a fighter. <clears throat> and with the history that I've just given you, it's a good chance that he's going to be fighting for the small people of Pennsylvania and not the big ones. And I think that that is just phenomenal. I hope that he, his recovery from the stroke continues and I hope that what we can do is see more good work from John Fetterman because this idealist, this idealistic human has a long way still to go. Okay. All right. We're going to take uh, – so we're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, there will be an encore airing of my interview of Ken Lawrence and Paul Johnson, the creators and curators of the Modern White Man pod podcast. Uh, you'll love that. We can't – we don't have enough time to give you the whole podcast, but you can go visit our you know, website and, and podcast to get the rest. Talk to you on the other side of it. Thanks. Ellie 2.0 Radio. I'm just sitting there seat dancing. I almost forgot I was here at the show. Oh, okay. Um, but we're going to begin with the two live idealists I have here in the studio with me. I have, I have uh, Ken Lawrence and Paul Johnson with me. They are the creators 
and the curators of an amazing podcast, The Modern White Man. And uh, I know it's amazing in part because I was just on the podcast with them. But that's how I got to know about their work. And that's why I have them here now. Okay, now, Ken and Paul, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. How are you? Doing wonderful. Thank you for having us, Ellie. It's a pleasure. Oh, well, I'm just thrilled. Yeah, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having us here. <laughs> Obviously, I'm nervous. So, <laughs> Oh, don't be nervous. Come on, come on. And, and I mean, and thanks for driving all the way out to Eden Prairie, you know, the trek. Hey, it's beautiful weather, like you said. So getting outside in any way this time of year. All right. So I want to uh, – and listeners, guess what? You can call in and you can talk to our guests. Again, number 952-946-6205. Let's begin with the podcast, The Modern White Man. What is it about? How And how did it come about? And, you know, and maybe you can – one of you can explain how the two of you even know each other and where, how, how this all came about. Yeah, so the, the Modern White Man, Paul and I had both worked in the nonprofit industry for years. And what that podcast is about is we discuss how to be – a white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands our role in creating equity. And how the need for this came about was really twofold. The first was my own personal lived experiences being in the nonprofits for so many years, being in meetings, kind of thinking, what really is my role? When should I speak up? Can I even be a leader in this industry working on diversity, equity, and inclusion, being a cisgender, heterosexual, white male? Like, do we even need leaders like that in this space? So really, over the years, just my internal experiences with those questions. And then also, I I would go into organizations and I would give diversity, equity, inclusion presentations, and I'd partner with black, indigenous people of color. And always in these presentations, you know, first off, numerically, the number of white men in the room are always the lowest. And then they're always the, the most quiet. And then at the end, we'd always stick around for questions. And white men would always come up to me directly. They'd single me out, almost like in a whisper, and be like, hey, you know, I, I didn't know how to ask this. I didn't know how to right. say this. But you know, what about this? And wh- what does it mean for me? And so there's just this, this like bottled up, like I think it's angst, it's, it's uncertainty, and it's fear, really, right. about what it means, what all this diversity, equity, and inclusion work means for me. So – uh, I, I was like, all right, I want to – so it all accumulated with – as I was doing this personal development work, I was reading a book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. Highly recommend the book. And there was like – it's rare to, to read a line that is almost an epiphany level. And, I, and the line was, when we see mutually respectful relationships between people of color and whites, it's typically due to – each individual tangible results from each individual's identity process. And I was like, oh my gosh, white men need to go through an identity process. How does our group membership as being white men impact our identities? And the reason that white men don't do that a lot is because we don't really have to unless it's an intentional effort. You know, women, people of color, non-binary folks, they all have experiences throughout their life that's like, huh, my group membership, you know, impacts me in this way. And and so I was like, all right, I, I want to create some kind of a group. I want to address this. I want to provide a space for white men to be able to do this identity work, to have a positive 
anti-racist, anti-sexist identity. I reached out to Paul. He and I were on the board of a nonprofit together. We had helped each other out with a few initiatives. And he was the only person in my mind where I was like, who would do this with me? So luckily he said yes, because I don't, I didn't have a backup plan. And, and that, so we've been live for about a year and a half and it's been going great. And accumulating with you as a fantastic guest, as you said. So now we're bringing on guests and just learning from different people. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, and listeners, I've got to tell you, and we're going to get the, we'll get the, the, con- the sync so that you can find this uh, podcast. But I have to tell you, I've been on a number of podcasts. Um, and, and, uh, actually want to be on as many as possible for, you know, my idealism, but I've got to tell you the modern white man is the most professional podcast I've been on. I mm-hmm. mean, these two guys are very, very good at what they do. Paul, what, you know, what do you think about the podcast and, and what's your motivation about being involved? Yeah. I mean, when Ken came to me, it was an easy yes. It, he, <clears throat> he really helped me see that. I have been going through an identity process for a number of years now, probably, you know, especially 10 years being very intentional about learning about racism and sexism and the history of our country. But what happened to me personally was I just really got stuck in a lot of shame because naturally when you learn about what white people have done and specifically white men have done to this country, to people in this country, mm-hmm. you immediately get this deep sense of guilt and shame and I really got stuck in that uh, that headspace. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, well, it, it, what I learned later, though, in the identity process, that that is a natural stage or status of that identity process. And what what makes the modern white man so uh, inspiring for me personally is that I don't need to stay there. That there is actually an ideal, right? There is a future state where we can get to as white men where we actually, our identity is actually inextricably linked to being anti-racist and anti-sexist. So, you know, when I was in that sort of deep sense, you know, deep place of shame, I was still doing the kind of anti-racist work and anti-sexist work, but I was doing it from a place of just really feeling really crappy, (laughs) you know, for lack of a better term. Like, I didn't feel good about myself. (laughs) I didn't feel good about white men. Um, and that really impacted then my relationships with other white people and with people of color in a negative way. But now with this 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 uh, ability to have an ideal state of I can actually have a positive identity, that changes everything in the work that I do. So I'm going to ask a personal question. Can I ask how old you guys are? Yeah, I am. I had to think for a second. I think I'm 36. 30, Paul's 36. 33 for me. 33. And the reason I ask this, okay – is that, you know, I do a lot of consulting with companies and, um, and well, first of all, I think I told you on the podcast, I believe that 98% of all people have good empathetic hearts. All right. I mean, I do 2% total sociopath. My listeners have heard this multiple times. Okay? <laughs> I, I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, we're afraid as you've been speaking and all that, but when I do my consulting and I go into an organization, they want, you know, we want to become more inclusive. We want to become more diverse, equitable. It's usually, there are naysayers. Okay. The people that are resistant to it. And they usually are older white men with power. Okay. And what I tell my clients, why it's important that we push back against the naysayers, because the naysayers aren't going to be around all that long. I keep telling them, it's even the white, younger people want to work in diverse places. 
they do not want to go into places that are homogene, you know, homogeneous. They want to go to places where there are all kinds of people, all co- skin colors, you know, uh, orientations, and all of that type of thing. Am, am I right? I mean, is that what you find with your cohorts? One hundred percent. And and you know, Paul and I are millennials, and it's even more so with Gen Z. And I do a lot of work with Gen Zers as well. Yeah. And when I see these high schoolers and college age students, it's even more so. Like I used to think that our millennial group was, you know, really progressive and starting to think ahead about these diverse spaces and and how that is a positive impact on us you know it's almost like we're the we start to realize that we've been stolen of relationships and experiences with people who are different than us because of these hierarchies that have been seeped into our societies and the separation that has been because of that and gen zers are like a whole new thing so that's one of the things i tell companies as well is like hey if we want to if you want to attract some small or, or some new young talent, you're going to have to really make this important. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, it's so incredibly important. It really is. All right. Well, listen, uh, listeners, we're going to take a break. If you want to call and talk to these remarkable young idealists, please give us a call at 952-946-6205. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 radio. If you like what you hear, go visit my website at Ellie. Krug.com. And when we come back, the very first thing we'll do is we'll make sure you know where to find the modern white man, although I bet uh, some of you have been on Google as we've been speaking. We'll be back in a second. Ellie 2.0 Radio, if you're watching us on Facebook Live, you're seeing me still do my seat dancing. Um, I have here in in the studio with me, and I cannot tell you how thrilling it is to be able to say that um, because it's been a long time since I've had live guests. Two men, Ken Lawrence and Paul Johnson, they are the creators and the curators of the Modern White Man podcast. Before we go any further, gentlemen, where can my listeners... Find the modern white man when they're not listening to LE 2.0 radio. You can find it on every major podcast platform. So you, wherever you listen to your podcast, it should be there. Also, we have a website, themodernwhiteman.com, where we write blog posts. We'd like to write more. That's a goal of ours, New Year's res- resolution. But we have a lot more about our work. And now you can check out our videos with guests on our YouTube channel. So we're, we're if you Googled Modern White Man, it should pop up. Okay, good. That's great. That's great. Now, Paul, um, you wanted to talk a little bit more about older white color men. Yeah, and just kind of white men in general across the generations and just, you know, I think as white folks we have to face and, and kind of reckon with the, this um, this deep-seated fear that we I think we've all inherited over time through generations. And, yeah, this isn't just older white men. This is all generations. that, And the fear really comes from loss, right? When we talk about, you know, especially organizations or communities becoming more diverse – we, we, I think, I think we all have this sort of a lot of times unconscious fear that we're going to lose something when this happens, right? Right. right. Um, and so we, what happens is that reflexive we, protection, protection of what we have and who we are, um, and a lot of times protection can turn into um, backlash, right? So, well, I, you, and aggression. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
So I think what's really, really important, what I want to impart on our, on these, you know, the listeners and what we do in our podcast is we really need to understand how being anti-racism actually benefits us as white folks because otherwise we see it as a zero-sum game where right. other people get something and we lose something. That's just not that's just not true. It feels that way because maybe we lose money or power or a position in our company and it feels like we're losing something. But we need to see that we're all interconnected and this is about this is about community gains, right? right? And then even and it seems counterintuitive to th- to think kind of selfishly like what do I gain from being anti-racist, being anti-sexist and and companies being more diverse and but you know, I think there is this Still, this fear of you know um, that these changes mean that I that I lose something, and I think for, uh, probably for older white men, you know, at the end of you know your careers, that that you've worked hard for a long period of time, and at this point, you don't want to you don't want to lose anything or give anything up, and you're proud of your legacy. But it's it is really important to understand how we all we all win when when this happens. Well, you know, I keep thinking of the uh, small family owned business in rural uh, Minnesota, you know, maybe they have 50 employees, all of them are white, but the, 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 the dad who owns the company wants to pass it on down to his son or his daughter and, you know, and wants the legacy to continue and, of course, the, you know, the livelihood and all of that stuff. But what's happening in rural Minnesota right now is that Young people, workers, they're not sticking around. They're going to the bigger city. And who's coming instead? People who are foreign-born. People who are born in, you know, in the south of the United States. People born over in Africa, a continent, you know. And they're coming to rural Minnesota. And if you don't have a, if you don't have a, 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 a mindset about wanting to be broad-minded, about wanting to Understanding diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, where you'd be a welcoming workplace to these people, okay, quotation marks around these people, um, your company's not going to survive. And I don't think there's a lot of people that understand that. Yeah, you know? and I think people need to understand, too, that you just, it's, you just can't be anti-racist without sacrificing something as, as a white person. Because as white folks, we have gained so many advantages and we have so much more. So if we want to get to it, an equity means some people get more than others. That's what equity means. Equality means everyone gets the same thing. Equity means some people get more than others. So that means that we might lose out on some things and it might mean that we have to sacrifice some things. And it's just it, it's just a natural reality of the work that you do with being anti-racist. And what we talk about on the podcast, though, I think is what is important is to redefine what sacrifice is. Because, yes, in the, in the traditional sense, we might be sacrificing some things. But like you said, Paul, to your really important point, we're gaining so much more. So it's a mental shift. So, yes, there are some sacrifices there, but what you're giving up, you gain so much more. And it's almost like this men- mentality that we have to change as to what makes one happy. Right. More money, more power, more more this or that, or that power is finite or leadership right. positions are finite. And we have to change that mentality because it sacrifice something, sure, but what we get out of it is just so much bigger. But yeah, and I, I, I'm uh, uh, because I, I'm trying to imagine me in a room using words like sacrifice or give up those phrases. 
and the reaction that older white men might have. And I think that, you know, the sacrifice quotation mark could be as simple as the older white man with power doesn't get to have a say on who the new HR director is. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and so now somebody else is going to make that decision and now it's going to be somebody they would not have chosen, but it's going to be somebody who's going to help bring the com- the company along. Yeah. That's that's a sacrifice, but it's not like, you know, we're you're telling the older white man you, you're going to lose fifty thousand dollars. Exactly. A year, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, all right. Well, uh, a couple more things. All right. So, what for the two of you? What's the most important thing that you've learned um, doing the podcast? I I just. The, the mental shift for me from going from feeling this in this this place of, you know, what's the point? My identity as a white man is just I, I have no positive feelings about it to to a, a hopeful um, mindset. And and I also I, you know, I'm very passionate about leadership. I have a master's degree in leadership. And what this podcast and this work has allowed me to do is see the hope <laughs> and try to inspire other white men to to you know, sometimes that means giving up your power or leadership abilities, but sometimes it's keeping it. But then what do you do with it? That's that's what I'm so interested about leadership is there's so much potential for good and so much potential for bad. And the history of white men is overwhelmingly bad, right, in the way we've used power in our leadership. But the future can be so much different that we leverage our power that we do inherently have mm-hmm. just by the color of our skin, just by our, our gender expression and sex to use it for good with, with doing DEI work. Oh, God, I love that. What have you learned, Ken? I'll give two. One on the tangible tool set side. So um, I would give The Ladder of Empowerment by Tima Okun. For those of you out there who want to look that up, The Ladder of Empowerment, it really shows each step status that every single individual goes to when they start to consider race and the differences, and then eventually to be an anti-racist. Everybody is on this if they choose to or not. You just might get stuck in, like, be like me, your defensive deni- uh, defensiveness, denial, guilt, shame. But super helpful framework because it helps us see where we might be at, what we want to work at, and what we're eventually aiming to be. And then the second one to kind of piggyback on what Paul was saying is that, you know, when, when I think – well, I know because white men have told me this, but when they hear this, it's like the initial reaction is like, oh, you're doing this because you just want to tell white men they're bad, they're oppressors, everything they're bad. Like even Paul to the point, like I wouldn't say white men, the history is overwhelmingly bad. Like there's a, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff for equity, but white men have been doing really good things along the line too. But the, what I would say is that that is not what we're doing here. It's the opposite. You go through this process, you go through the tough situations, you go through the tough conversations to eventually have a better positive identity. It makes you feel so much better. So like my big takeaway is like I just feel really like a lot – like really good, like a lot better about my identity, a lot better about myself. This idea of giving things up, like what sacrifices are – don't seem like sacrifices to me because I'm gaining so much. And it, it, like literally I just feel so much better and I want white men to to kind of feel that. It's almost like a relief. You're like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, it, I can do some really good things to make some equity in in, in, in society. Oh boy, we need like, uh, we need to uh, duplicate the two of you by the millions. <laughs> get you, <laughs> You're kind. Get you out there. So um, you know that I always ask guests on my show what's made them an idealist, okay? So, Paul, what, what made you an idealist? Because uh, there's – without 
I had no idea when I came on your podcast that you were idealistic, but it became very clear to me as we interacted with each other that you were. So, Paul, what made you an idealist? For me, I, I felt like I had no choice but to be an idealist. I think I've naturally been uh, – naturally am an idealist, but but I, I needed to have hope because hope mm. is what – motivates people hope is what keeps people going right and i did experience a time years ago where i was burning out and i was ready to just say you know i'm done i just don't want to do this work it's too hard i feel too bad about myself and as white folks right we have that option especially white men we have that option to say no i'm done right right Right. other folks do not have the option i'm just going to look out for me and mine exactly so But what keeps me going, what keeps me having energy and that, that positive outlook is this this idealist view that white men can play a really positive role uh, in, in DEI work. And we need to be obviously very careful about that ro- role is and be very discerning and sit back and learn from people of color and, and women and, and non-binary folks and folks like you, Ellie, and, and say, what, what do we – you know, tell us what we're doing wrong and be open to that feedback. Um, and also not relying on folks, you know, to tell us those things. We need to educate ourselves, right? Because right. it can be exhausting for other people to teach white men all the time, right? It's not their job. It's our job to educate ourselves. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of what, what uh, has worked for me to, to, you know, lean into idealism. I, I love it. And, Ken, what made you an idealist? You know, ever since I was a kid, that I just, it's just kind of been natural and kind of weird. I remember laying in bed just thinking, why am I so lucky all the time? And, and oh. you know, I, I grew up uh, very privileged into a private high school, uh, all male military Catholic, you know, uh, type of situation where, you know, primarily all white. And I was always like, why me? Why am I so lucky? I have no no um, real problems and so many people do. It was just natural. And I always thought that I joined the Peace Corps after college. Yeah. I lived in Guinea, West Africa for about two and a half years. And you live without electricity for that long and you really go deep in your thoughts. Like you can only read and, you know, write and dance by yourself so much. So like thinking – so deeply about what's important mm-hmm. to me has only really increased my idealism. And it, that w- those are really, really tough moments too, but paid off. Well, I tell you, um, the two of you, I, uh, I am here for you. If there's anything I can ever do to help your podcast get more notoriety for the two of you to go and, and do your, the work that you're doing, okay, I am just so grateful that the two of you exist, Okay. Thank you, Ellie. We really appreciate that. You as well. So I feel so fortunate we made this connection with you. So well, thank you. Well, thanks. Sorry that I wasn't able – we weren't able to give you the entire interview of the Modern White Man podcast curators. But you can get the rest if you go back to – go to the website at AM950, click on my show and just find them. May 14th, 2022 and get the rest of the interview. Thanks. I want to We're back. Sorry that I wasn't able, we weren't able to give you the entire interview of the Modern White Man podcast curators, but you can get the rest if you go back to, go to the website at AM950, click on my show and just find the, the May 14th, 2022 show and just 
you'll be able to hear the rest of that. So thanks. All right, C Block, my work. And <laughs> as I spoiled it at the beginning, um, school board election. Many of you know I ran for the school board for Eastern Carver County School District, uh, District 112 here in Minnesota. There were 12, <laughs> count them, 12 candidates vying for four seats. And I am thrilled to report to you that I uh, received nearly 10,000 votes and received the third highest um, percentage of votes. Now, I had <laughs> I had door knocked every weekend, every weekend from Labor Day on. Uh, and I estimate that I knocked on somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 doors. Now, and, and for the most part, I'm the, I, I had a little bit of help on a couple of occasions, but for the most part, it was me. And you've got to understand, everyone. I know I've got a radio show. I do all this stuff across the country. But I'm really an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. So for me to go and keep – you know, knocking on doors. And then, of course, the voice doesn't match the appearance. And you know what? But I will tell you, the experience of door knocking was incredible. I mean, I met so many wonderful people. I did. I met – yeah, I yep, I met – last weekend, I met I met one who asked, you know, you know, who are you for? And I said, well, you know, the it's nonpartisan for the school board. And he's like, no. You know, do you, do you like Trump? And I said – Nope, voting for Governor Walls, and then he, then he got very angry with me, said a, a couple of swear words, and told me to get off of his ex property. And so, but you know what? I, I can count on like literally one hand the number of people that were not very friendly to me compared to all of the. I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of people that were incredibly friendly to me. So that was great. But last weekend, as I was on Sunday, last day, okay, and on Sunday I did a hundred and I did a hundred and fourteen doors. I kept I kept count, and I kept count because I, I I kept track of the number of people whose doors I knocked on who who said that they had already voted for me, or were like total strong commitment. You could just say you know you could just tell oh I've, I've checked you out Ellie I'm voting for you it's on my list da da da, and so I what I calculated was that I was running on that Sunday somewhere between 8 and 10 percent who had voted for me or stronger commitments. And then I'd guessed, you know, maybe another 5 percent, 5 to 8 percent of people that were likely, but you don't know. And I'm thinking, you know, I mean, we got 12 candidates. If I can get 10 percent of the vote, I mean, um, I think that that's pretty good. And then my website last weekend blew up. I mean, I couldn't. I had, I had, I eight hundred views on my website on Saturday with like four hundred and fifty people who had visited, and then the next day it was as high. And I'm like, "Holy cow, what is going on?" And so I'm trying to tell myself, Ellie, it's looking good. But I did not want to tell myself that. Oh, by the way, well, I'll tell you the percentage that I got. Just hold on a second, okay? But I go out, I go and vote on Tuesday, of course. And I'm at, you know, in line at the machine where, you know, the, the man, uh, tall man in, in, in his, I'd guess, 30s with, a little, with his daughter there. He puts his ballot in the machine and then he turns to me and he says, Ellie, 
I voted for you. And I'm like, who are you? You know, and he said, you know, he said his name was, you know, George and, and, you know, and I shook his hand and I thanked him. Well, from there, I went to the post office. I had to go mail something. And what do I get? The person behind the post office, you know, the desk who I have no idea who this person is, says, hey, how's the campaign going? (laughs) And so, you know, and so remember, I told you I was doing that door knock and I'm thinking, hey, you know, I'm going to get somewhere between if I can get 10 percent. I'm going to be able to do this. And guess what? You know what percentage of vote I got on Tuesday? 10.85% of the vote. And that gave me the third highest uh, tally. Although, as one of my supporters said, the two people who had the highest tallies were in the 12% range were the two incumbents. So one of my supporters said, "You, Ellie, you were incredible. You know, you were the strongest person other than the two incumbents. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I'm on the school board now. Public official, elected, woohoo! And I did some research. There are, it looks like about five transgender people who are on school boards right now. Got elected either this term or already on them. So there you go. All right, history made in Eastern Carver County. All right. Big thank you. I got to go. I mean, big thank you to my producer, Brett Johnson, who's always having to navigate things around Ellie Krug. And a big thanks to you, my listeners, because some of you reached out to me about the election. And I appreciate that. Some of you cared. I really appreciate that. And as we go forward, I'll talk to you about how it's going, you know, and what's it like to be, you know, a school board member in a time when being on a school board in America is not easy. We shall see. This idealist going forward. Don't worry. Nothing's going to stop me. All right. Take care. Talk to you next week. Go do something good. All right. Make the world better. Bye-bye.